In the last several years, Congress has passed and three presidents have signed into law massive expansions of the federal government. Now the government has new programs to launch and thousands of people to hire. But my next guest cautions the public sector should avoid the mistake of trying to act like a business, a piece of advice the government often does get. Bob Tobias is a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University, and he joins me now. And I've heard this and you've heard this so many times over the years. Government needs to be more like a business. And I guess that's true, but it's also not true. Correct, Bob? Yes, I think that's exactly right. We hear these calls. The government should be run like a business. But I don't think it's possible. And I don't think it's possible because the public sector measures efficiency in entirely different terms than the private sector. And Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, very famous for writing Good to Great, also wrote something that received not much attention. It's called Good to Great in the Social Sector. And he says, quote, we must reject the idea, well-intentioned, but dead wrong. The primary path to greatness in the social sectors is to become more like a business. Now, what he says is that in the private sector, it's very easy to measure success. Dollars in, dollars out. Very, very easy to measure success. In the public sector, it's dollars in, but the measure of success is mission accomplishment, something that no one agrees on. Congress might have a different idea. The president might have a different idea. OMB might have a different idea. And so this idea saying run like a business, the measures are entirely different. And I also think that the structure of leading is much different in the federal government than in the private sector. Because in the private sector, businesses bury mistakes. If there's a cost overrun on technology, it gets buried or at best it's in a footnote. In contrast, public sector leaders are subject to GAO, inspector general, and congressional oversight investigations. They're subject to social media and newspaper and cable television criticism. And of course, there are well-funded stakeholders who lobby public sector leaders at every step of the process. Let me just challenge you on one point here, too. And it's true, there's a great deal of accountability structure built into government. But is there really? And I'm thinking of, say, one of the big programs launched in the early days of the pandemic, Payroll Protection Plan, lots of well-intentioned money in the government wrongly measured how fast they got it out, which was really a measure that Jim Collins would not approve of because he would approve of a measure more like what did it do for the employment levels. But now we're finding hundreds of billions of dollars were fraudulently or just mistakenly expended in that way. And so we have this knowledge, but will anyone lose their job like they would in business? Or can we point the finger at how this happened? So in some ways, the accountability doesn't go all that far necessarily. Well, I think it does go that far. Unfortunately, the people who made those decisions are no longer in the government. They've long since departed. And I think you're right on the mark about an incorrect measure. The measure that was adopted was how fast can we spend the money, not how well we can spend the money. And there was incredible pressure to get the money out. And it would have taken an incredible leader to stand up and say, hold it, not this week, not next week, six weeks from now, we'll have this program in place and then we'll send the money. So 
in the private sector, the leader could have said that we're not going to spend the money until we get everything in place. But at that particular time, all of the pressure, all of the focus was to get the money out. And they did. And now we're all paying for it. We're all paying for it as taxpayers. We're speaking with Bob Tobias, professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. And I want to get back to that point of measuring the correct metrics for whether government is operating properly. And as you point out, it is really outcomes in the social world that government is serving, in the peoples that the government is serving. And over the years, government and administrations, several of them, have adopted that idea But it doesn't seem to quite filter through yet in totality that, yes, you need the disciplines of business, but you need the measurements and metrics that are appropriate to government. And I think that hasn't quite maybe gelled totally. Well, I think that's right, Tom. We do need in government efficiency and effectiveness, but we also need measured outcomes. And if you look over the past several administrations, there have been struggles to define outcomes. And if you look at the way each administration has published results, they have moved ever so incrementally toward outcomes. But what's interesting is that when they go to Congress every year and say, hey, wait a minute, we achieved our goals, Congress says, so what? So what? We're either going to give you money or not give you money based on political considerations not on organizational success. In the private sector, organizational success means bonuses and stock options. In the public sector, it doesn't really matter as Congress considers the budget process. So the incentive to do outcomes isn't supported by Congress. Right. And that points to two issues that the government deals with uniquely versus the private sector. One is that political leadership overlay that's ultimately always there, and then the comings and goings of political agents at the agency level, the individual political appointees. That's one variable that business doesn't exactly deal with. I mean, CEOs come and go, but, you know, it's not the same as Congress. And the other issue is that the leadership and the chains of command are often very diffuse, in federal agencies. You could have a program manager saying, this is a great thing to do, let's go ahead. But someone in acquisition or procurement or say, well, you can't do that this way because of such and such far part X, Y, Z. So the diffusion of authority sometimes, I think, maybe makes it difficult for government to get its wood behind the same arrowhead. Well, there is the issue of multi-layers in government. And there is the issue in government about decisions made not on the basis of efficiency and effectiveness, but rather on a political point of view. And so that's also tough to deal with as a federal leader. And, you know, of course, in the federal sector, there's also the Constitution that guides federal leaders, which isn't applicable in the uh, private sector. So federal leaders are I think, appropriately risk-averse. So rather than bold action, I think we see a lot of risk-averse action because of the context in which leaders make decisions. So what's the way forward here for the next 100 years? Well, I think the way forward is a more assiduous approach to measuring outcomes. Because even if Congress doesn't value outcomes, 
a president and the executive branch ought value outcomes because they're responsible for delivering efficiency and effective mission accomplishment to the public. So I believe if they truly were serious and kept moving more assiduously forward, it would have a very positive impact on the federal government. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. As always, great to have this discussion with you. Thank you very much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 